Founders face mentors and masters. I'm Captain Hawk, CEO of Founderspace, the leading global startup accelerator. I'm also author of the award-winning books, Make Elephants Fly, Surviving a Startup, and The Five Horses. I am with Warren Coglin. He has a mission to help entrepreneurs who are building ethical businesses. Warren, welcome to the show. And can you tell our audience a little about your background? Sure, I'll try to make it quick. My background needs almost like a, a weird beginning. Uh, when I was born, I was supposed to die. And so I had zero chance of survival is what my doctors told me. And when I learned that, it kind of spurred this desire in me to do something. So my, my background is very circuitous and weird. I'm a recovering lawyer. So I was trying to pursuit of justice or maybe go into politics. I've been an actor and a theater director, you know, transformative power of art. I've been a serial entrepreneur, had three or four businesses in the new media space. And then that kind of ultimately took me into business coaching. And that's what I've been doing for almost the last 20 years now. But each one of those has been born out of some desire to have kind of an impact or do something that I, uh, that I wanted to do with this unexpected and unearned gift of life. Warren, your background sounds like it mirrors mine. You know, I've been in film and television. I've been doing all these things. I'm coaching entrepreneurs, helping entrepreneurs, really wanting entrepreneurs to do better and mm -hmm. actually build businesses that affect the world in a positive way. Because we know it's so easy to build a business and then just take, take, take from the world and not give back. So I actually believe that entrepreneurship is one of the most powerful forces for positive social change. You know, it's like, there's a, I don't know, you ever see the play Rent? There's a, there's a line in that play that I just love. It says, the opposite of war is not peace, it is creation. And what do entrepreneurs do? But they create, they create jobs, wealth, opportunities, solutions to problems. And so it really matters that they learn to do it well. I agree. And what you're saying is right. And I completely agree with the idea that you affect the world a much bigger way through a for-profit entrepreneurial venture than a nonprofit. The reason is simple. Nonprofits really can't scale because they aren't making money. So they always have to go back to donors to raise money to accomplish what they need to do. And that's very hard to grow. But a for-profit business, if you are an ethical for-profit business, the more money uh, you're making, you can put that right back into making a big, bigger difference and a bigger impact. So let's talk about some of the companies you're working with and the work you do with them to get them really focused on maximizing not just the bottom line, which every company is focused on, but maximizing their positive impact in the world. Yeah, it's interesting in that I actually use the word optimize profitability rather than maximize because entrepreneurs have a whole bunch of sometimes not completely aligned objectives, right? They still want to make money, but they want to spend time with their family. They want to provide a great place for their employees. And so there's sort of like, what's the optimal kind of profitability that allows you to do that? When you're driven to maximum profitability, that often drives you to compromise some of those other things that are important. And even just that, that shift in language I find actually liberating for people because there's so much media pressure about and cultural pressure that your profits have to be maximized. And as soon as you sort of say, well, no, they don't have to be, they got to be optimized for everything in your life. Um, that, that liberates people to think about the other things that matter to them, like impact, like um, contribution to the community or their employees. And when we talk about impact, it really varies. Like impact can be huge. Like I've got a client that they, they want to 
they want to redirect a billion pounds of plastic from the waste stream. And then I've got somebody else who just wants to create an environment in which human beings can grow and, and flourish. And so that the nature of the impact is very, very individual. It is. So you can have a positive impact in providing literally a great environment for your employees and for their yeah. families so that they are thriving. And every business, honestly, if it's a good business and a responsible business, every single business has the potential to really transform people's lives. The people well, I, in I, the company, your customers, go on. Yeah, I, I had one client. It's a great version of impact. It's quite different. He was a customer in his industry, like before he entered the industry, and he experienced this horrible customer service standards. And he went, this is terrible. So he went and started a business in that industry for the sole purpose of raising the customer service standards. And I thought, that, that's really cool. That's like great. Just, Which, what company was this? I'm very curious. It's a, it's a small company in the pest control business in the Toronto area. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, so he that was his impetus. He's like, I can do so much better job at servicing these customers. Yeah, he was like, this is just terrible. I can't believe people have to experience this kind of crappy service. And so he just wanted to go and make it better. A lot of entrepreneurs, that's their inspiration. They're literally yeah. frustrated with what they're getting out there. And they're like, I could do this better. I can see how to do this better. And I think that's a great reason to start a company. First of all, you're making the world a better place by making a much better service. Second, it's a great business model because you know, if you feel that way, there are a lot of other people who. Oh yeah. And then you, and people will be drawn to you because too many people, you know, they sort of settle for what they think is what they have to settle for. Yes. And when somebody comes up and raises the game, all of a sudden they're delighted and that business profits. Yes. And we all can't wait till Comcast here, the cable company does the same. <laughs> they actually we have cable companies here, the same problem. Yeah. They're horrible customer service, <laughs> always some problem. So uh, tell us, uh, do you have some very uh, tangible stories about entrepreneurs you've worked with that have really gone, that changed their thinking, changed their approach to building oh. their business, making it much more ethically focused? Yeah. And, and let me actually just take a step back. So my, my, kind of focus, if you like, within within this sort of making a difference uh, world is to combine culture and strategy. Like when those two things line up, you often hear like, you know, strategy eats culture. I, I used to say that. I don't believe that anymore. I think strategy and culture are the best bedfellows. Like they're a great marriage because when, you know, strategy tells you what to do, culture makes sure that it gets it done. And that's actually new thinking for a lot of entrepreneurs, how to actually build a strategy, how to execute the strategy, and then do it in a values-driven cultural framework. That's sort of like in a real you know, thousand-foot level what I do. When that gets implemented, it's pretty remarkable. And I can tell you two really quick stories about that. One, <laughs> uh, uh, two partners who are businesses in about a $35, $40 million business, and I introduced the idea of culture values-driven culture. And one of the partners, he was a big, tough guy. And he was like, I won't swear, but his vernacular was, this is effing bullcrap. <laughs> <laughs> and his partner wound up working on him. And a year later, they brought me back in to do this culture values work. They've grown to $75 million. They've been named best place to work five years running. One of the partners only works two days of work a week. And he now says, culture, it's everything. So, so what did they do? Like, if I'm an entrepreneur out there, how can I emulate them? What did they figure out? There's some language that'll sound cushy or fuzzy, but it's when you use it, it's really concrete. So having a really clearly defined purpose, why you do what you're doing, having a vision statement and not just a statement, but clarity of what it is you're trying to build and then have values that are reduced to very specific behaviors. And this is one of the big distinctions 
is sometimes you'll go into organizations and they have values that sort of sit up on their wall somewhere and they sound all very kumbaya. But when you take those and translate them into very specific behaviors about how people act and inter interact with each other and with customers in this work environment, that transforms how people um, perform their work. Okay. And when you drive, and one of the distinctions too is a culture, it's not about building a nice culture. It's about building a high performance culture. And when, so those behaviors are frankly demanding, they're hard, like your values, you should have tough conversations about them, whether you're meeting them or not. And when you do that and have really supportive conversations about living those values, everybody's standards are raised and you wind up attracting better employees, which means you wind up servicing your clients better, which means you wind up attracting and keeping clients longer and making more money. And so that's really what, what happened to that organization. Well, give me some examples of these values. Like, I want to really understand, like, what did they do? Like, what values did they promote? How did it affect their business? What, how did it change people's behavior? All right. So great example from this. So I went in there one day and one of their vice presidents said, Warren, we got to work on some systems. And this is a business that has lots of systems. And I said, well, what could you possibly need? And they told me this long story about how things got all muddled up between two different departments. And I listened to the story and then I pulled out their values sheet. And I just said, I pulled out two or three of them. And I said, were any of these followed? And the room got real quiet, right? And I said, how long would this have taken if they had been followed? And they said, well, probably about 12 minutes. And it was just values like collaboration, you know, like when something happens, reach out to somebody else. Like there were very specific behaviors about what we mean by collaboration. Communication, which is, you know, the behaviors were when I don't know what's going on, I reach out for help. When I see somebody else needing help, I reach out to offer it. Like very specific observable behaviors. So these are and sort it, of common sense, but also people don't do them, right? Oh, <laughs> so. Totally, totally. And there, but there, it's important there be like excellence in an engineering firm will have different behaviors than excellence in an event management firm. And so that's why it's really important to distill it down to the behaviors because you need to know what that value looks like in this specific environment. And then when you do that, ultimately it can get translated into performance management systems. I've got clients who, you know, you get your performance management review templates and instead of it being task specific, they're all value specific. And when you, if your values are well chosen and your behaviors are well articulated, they can't help but produce good performance. And so you don't have to talk about being on time or whether you filled out form 23C correctly. It's really just whether, you know, you have lived that value properly, because if you do, then everyone performs. That is really interesting. So I could imagine in an engineering group, you know, a lot of engineers, they're kind of solo, they're doing their thing, but they're working on a collaborative project. Now you could, one of your values could be, if you find a bug in somebody else's code, don't just fix it and move on fix it and then go to that person and explain the bug and help them understand how it happened. One of the other tricks and values is, is understanding the hierarchy of the values too. People like to think values when you have them, they're all nice and they never conflict with each other, but that just isn't true. Like I, I had a construction company, about a hundred million dollar construction company as a client, and they had safety and productivity as two of their top values. But here's where it becomes interesting. Like when you take your values, you then have to, you have to look at your systems and your compensation and incentives to see whether they line up. So in this case, they said safety was their number one value, but their project managers were compensated. They were bonused on hitting pro on productivity targets. So when it snows out, do you tell your people to slow down to stay safe or are you to tell them to speed up to hit your productivity targets? 
if you put productivity first, that leads to a very different conclusion than if you put safety first. And the incentives, they said safety was first, but their incentives and their systems communicated that productivity was first. And so it isn't, that's why I say this stuff, like it isn't hanging on the wall. Once you've articulated them, you got to dive deep and say, okay, what are we actually communicating? And is that aligned with what we say is important? Yes, I completely see that because incentives are the most powerful thing. Everybody's going to focus on incentives first, no matter what order you put things in. You know, those are just words. But if I get rewarded for a certain thing, if I get promoted, if I get kudos, if I get bonuses, whatever it is, those are the things that are going to register. So you need to make sure that all your incentives, everything, you support your values. And if they don't- And your systems. And like your your systems, right? Because in that case, the foreman, all they did was- put in sheets that were uh, reporting on their productivity targets. They didn't have any forms on safety incidents. Right. You got to track the safety problems and grade people according to them, you know, whether yeah. they get promoted, whether they get bonuses, they have to have a good safety record or it doesn't matter. Underneath all of this is the core business discipline too. Like I, I had a client who he, he incented his salesperson with commissions based on total sales volume. And I went in there and he was losing his mind because he was going bankrupt but his business was growing like crazy. And I actually like did some analysis. He didn't know how to do the analysis on his numbers and his margins were shrinking. And so, but he kept buying new trucks and hiring new people. And it's because his salesperson was succeeding by discounting all the time. And so his revenue was going up, but his margins were shrinking and his business, the, the systems just couldn't support that. And so we went in and we changed the salesperson's comp structure to be compensated on margins instead of revenue. And the salesperson wasn't too happy with me about that, but it saved the business. Yeah. And that simple change made an enormous impact on that business. That's really important. Now, hospitals, right? Hospitals, some of them have a very high rate of mistakes that they make while doing surgery and other procedures, a very high rate. You know, you could say, you know, don't make mistakes, put the patient first. You could put all these great slogans out there, but they found the thing that actually worked in these hospitals more than anything they could say, more than any policies, and they had all these policies that they had, was a simple list that the doctors would follow of Mm -hmm. what, a checklist, making sure do this, do that, don't forget this, do this. And when they went down the list, the number of mistakes plummeted and it became much better for the patients, for the doctors, for malpractice, for profitability, everything. There's a great article I read, um, and it's on from Farnham Street, which is a great blog. And the article was called How Not to Be Stupid. And it actually articulated like seven criteria, there are seven circumstances that drive stupidity. And one of them is like rushing, fatigue, you know, and a whole series of these things. And so pilots have done the same thing. That series of checklists are meant to overcome uh, the temptations or the inclinations to be stupid under stressful, fatiguing circumstances. And a business is the same way. When you, if you can have checklists of what need to be done, when you make sure you review your financials, when you make sure you review your key performance indicators and all those kinds of things, you'll wind up making better decisions. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is be granular, right? You can have these lofty goals to be ethical, to be a value-based system, but they really mean nothing. They're just words until you break it down into the actual actions people take every day. I sometimes think I run afoul of what a lot of the people in the coaching industry say, because you hear all this stuff about just set big lofty goals and pursue the vision. And for every apocryphal story of you uh, that you hear of somebody who just damned the torpedoes and went ahead without following systems, there's a hundred others in the ditch, you know, that crashed and burned. 
And it's, it's really important to go to that granular level. Cause the, you know, there's a, I don't know if there's a, there's a, there's a Canadian astronaut um, named Chris Hadfield. He was the commander of the space station and he wrote a book called the astronaut's guide to life on earth. And he has a great thing. He says, guys like me, like coaches, I actually met him a while ago. He's a fascinating guy. But he says, you know, people in your industry, they like to talk about big, lofty envision success. He goes, you got to visualize failure. You got to see what can go wrong and then dig in to make sure that doesn't go wrong. And when you do that, I've had clients where we've introduced that as part of their strategic planning process. They have another group come in on any project plan and poke holes at it to find, they have to find between three and seven ways that this thing is going to fail. And then they redo the plan based on that feedback. And when you do that, that kind of granularity of examining where things can go wrong, it's so critical. You know, in Silicon Valley, we often drink our own Kool-Aid and everybody's like, change the world. That's what you have to do. We're Silicon Valley. But they don't tell entrepreneurs like what you need to do to build a great company that will actually change the world. Mm -hmm. And I have a name for your book when you write it. When you write your book, I want it called you Building Values from the Bottom Up. Ah, I love that. You can use that if you want. Seriously, it's from the bottom up. It's from what people do in the processes at work every day. So can you give us a few more examples of how companies have transformed themselves from the bottom up? Yeah. So great, great example. I had a client who, when I first started working with him, he was in debt to the government for tax arrears. He was really demotivated, didn't really have a vision for what he wanted to do. It was kind of just like in this state of ennui. And we did a few things. So we, we got a really clear vision for the business, but more importantly, we had a really clear vision for what he wanted to do in his life, like the impact he wanted to have. And it drew, we, what came out of him was he really wanted to help youth in at-risk neighborhoods get education. That's what really what was driving it. And so we built a business that needed a certain amount of profitability in order to finance that initiative. And so we, we did the strategic planning. Right, really looked at, and when I say strategic planning, I mean operational strategic planning, like what is working in the business, what is not working in the business, what needs to be fixed in order to get to there, and then sequencing it in the right way. So you're not trying to do 23 things at once, but just two. So they actually get finished. And in just a few years, he wound up selling the business for a very attractive eight figures. He had a second tier of leadership, so he didn't have to be there all the, de- all the time. He had a high-performance culture of people who cared passionately about the organization. And he now has a foundation that basically accomplishes his social objectives while he has a, you know, a boat in the south of France. <laughs> you know, and the beauty of these businesses is that if you make it process-based, like you're talking about, and you really... Uh, go granular on, on how people should behave and act in their jobs and make sure all the incentives align so that they are motivated to do the right thing. Then when, if you leave the business, all those things are still in place. If it's all based just on you and what, you know, you're guiding and what you're telling people, then as soon as you leave, you leave a business that, that could go astray and per- perhaps against your value. Yep. If you want to leave a business, I, I understand there's exceptions to this and people have done it without this, but to optimize value and optimize your legacy, I think there's three things that have to be in place. You have to have a second tier of management who buys into your vision. You need to have a high performance culture who can run the business because they care passionately about the vision and about the business and your customers. And you need a management dashboard that you can sort of manage the business from afar, that you're getting key performance numbers that are both uh, result indicators and predictive indicators. So you can see, oh, if this thing changes, that might mean that's happening down the line. 
If those three things exist, you have a highly saleable business because somebody coming in to buy the business is going to realize they don't have to go in and do things operationally and they can spend more time on other things. And the revenues that flow from that are far more predictable and replicable. What is one thing that most entrepreneurs get wrong when trying to build an ethical value-based business? Ah, great question. Um, I think the answer to that is most people think they have to wait. There is a, I will be values driven when. I will not have to compromise things when. And that's a mugs game. When you actually start with that, when you say, no, no, that's, that's the price of entry stuff. My values are, are the foundation upon, what, like what you said, from the bottom up, when the values, when the impact I want to have, what I care about is the foundation of the business, then that serves as the criteria. Um, it's almost like the theory of constraints, right? It actually puts some guardrails around the options that are available to you. And so it actually, it, it pressures your creative thinking into coming up with the right solutions. Um, and so this idea that I'll worry about impact and I'll worry about doing the right thing after I'm cash flow positive or something, that's the biggest self-justifying myth that will keep people from actually having the impact they want. Yeah. Like you've been pointing out, the values have to be built in from the beginning. If they're mm -hmm. an afterthought, often you never get to it. And even if you get to it, it feels tacked on. It's not core to the business. So what you're saying is absolutely right. Don't believe this stuff when people say things like, well, you have to in business, or it's just one of those things you have to do in business. You don't. You know, you can, you can find, you can stand on your values and your principles and find creative ways of doing that. And my experience has been when you do that, like I remember what, long ago, I was in a partnership and my partner asked one of our employees to do something that was not right. And she came to me about it. And my partner and I had a pretty big row about it. Um, but 20, you know, or however many years later, that employee is still connected with me. You know, even though I'm, I'm in a different business and everything now, we're still, we still are, are tight. And it's because she knew that I would never ask her to do something that compromised her moral values. And that gave her a sense of sort of confidence and comfort with where she was to do good work. And like you said, you get, you speak to people on that level, you interact with people on that level. And that builds your culture. Your culture comes out of how you, all these little pieces that you put together, the foundation of building values. And one of the things, I don't know if this is too philosophical, Steve, but, you know, I find there's not a lot, there's not a lot of environments in which people can have conversations now about morality and values and what matters in the world. And when your workplace is actually an environment where those kind of conversations are not only allowed to happen, but are encouraged to happen. It's pretty cool. Like I've found people are kind of hungry for the opportunity to think about those kinds of things. And if you say we're a company that cares about this stuff, you'll get people really loyal. Warren, it has been wonderful having you. Can you tell our audience where they can find you and the different materials like your playbook that you have available? Sure. So um, I'm at warrencoglin.com. So that's Warren, C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N.com. And I actually have a, a strategy sort of blueprint, like how you can more detail on the, on the actual concrete seven steps to go through to build a strategy that we wouldn't have time here for. And all you have to do is go to warrencoglin.com slash free dash blueprint. 
and you can download that. And it's it's a pretty comprehensive sort of explanation of the of the actual steps you need to go through to produce that kind of strategy. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you liked it, hit the subscribe button and share it with your friends. You can help us create more great content by subscribing and sharing. Also, if you want to access our online startup program, our investor network, and our entrepreneur resources, just come to founderspace.com.